about uh, specifically, in some ways, some more practical uh, application of what Nugent has been talking about. And I think, I don't, I don't know if this is right or not, but I, I wonder if part of what we've been wrestling with as we walk through what he's saying is that living out our Christian faith is pretty complicated. Uh, I think it's a fair point. It's, it's, it's nuanced. A lot of times when we try to describe what we're doing in living out our Christian faith, we tend to maybe oversimplify it a little bit. And so perhaps part of what we're wrestling with is a level of complexity here as we think this through. But especially today and uh, on Thursday, we're going to kind of sink into uh, what does this look like practically? And today we're going to think primarily about life together. What does it mean to be uh, the church? Uh, What does that look like? Uh, And how does that connect with our mission to not try to bring about a better place, but to live from the better place that that Jesus has made. And so a lot of what I have today up here are going to be just questions uh, for us to try to think through together uh, as we wrestle with some of what Nugent is saying. So we'll touch on discipleship, leadership, fellowship, a lot of ships. Um, ships, The ship's going down in class today. Um, Family relationships. Friendships. All right. Yeah, I think they're all ships. Um, so here's, so I kind of want to start here. When we think about discipleship, uh, and actually this is interesting because uh, my church is kind of wrestling with this right now. Nugent says not all congregations would require true commitment from their members. Is that true or false? Why? Why not? If it is true, then what are the implications? There's some big questions. How do you throw for it? Is it true, false, mostly true, mostly false? What does it mean by true commitment? That's a good question. How, I mean, how would you how would you define true commitment? I mean, you're urged partaking in things, helping out where help is needed. Okay. Okay, be a part of the community so that there's at least some level of commitment to, you know, you said participating in times of worship, times of gathering. Yeah? And I think the, just the term commitment implies a level of sacrifice. So I think it's um, requiring things that may not necessarily be easy. Okay. Like, commitment demands effort. Okay. I think uh, I'd say the phrase is true. Okay. I'd agree with it just because uh, there are some places where being a member really doesn't mean much and there's not much that you have to do or there's not not to say that there is a danger of getting legalistic but there's no regulation either way it's a, we prefer if you do these things but there's really no way to know okay um, yeah so I agree with you okay yeah so it almost becomes you mentioned like legalistic so on the one hand we all on the one of the spectrum it could be almost like everything's completely optional on the other hand, it's like it's legalistic, so that you know if you're not doing this, then you're you're out in a kind of way that just focuses on the letter of the law versus really understanding the spirit uh, or something like that. Others, yeah, Josh. I say it's true uh, because it makes me think of you know kind of um, uh, seeker sensitive or seeker friendly churches where it's just like. Just come, check us out, see what you think. You know, don't feel pressure to anything. That, that's kind of the, the vibe I'm getting from that statement. And I say it's definitely true. 
churches that wouldn't call themselves that. It's kind of, you know, well, you're not the pastor and you're not on leadership, so therefore you don't really have to do anything here. We don't have any expectations of you here other than just please come. Okay. Yeah. Is there So even think about a term like, you know, he, he uses the term uh, member. What other things are people members of in our culture? Gyms. Okay, gym. Grocery stores. Costco. Costco. It's more than a grocery store. Uh, a yacht club. Right? Yacht club. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's the first thing that came to my head. That means something. Yacht club. Country club. Country club. Would you say break. something as simple as like family? Okay, yeah, family. But we usually talk about our family, the members of the family. Um, so, they, yeah. so think about what some of these different things, I mean like if you're, a, if, okay so I'm a Costco member, uh, is, what does that require of me? Money. Money. Initial membership. Initial membership. That's all I know. That's all. Kind of like a gym. You go. Yeah, I'm gonna sign up. Right. Initial <laughs> membership. <laughs> right. I'm in. Right. And then you're like, oh, I never went back there. Just <laughs> uh, we're getting to that time. So that at least in some of these, there is some level of commitment, maybe financial. Uh, but there's not really. Again, nobody's gonna call me up. Like Costco doesn't. Like you haven't been to Costco in three weeks. Right? What are you? You're not really living up to your, right? Because it's not. Uh, that's not what it means by membership. Maybe I mean the one that again, depending on the the feel of your family. I mean, usually there's a sense that to be a family member means that there is something required of you. I feel like I've given this speech a lot in the last couple of weeks to my kids. Like, <laughs> I saw too much over Thanksgiving break. Like you're a member of the family. That means there are certain expectations about what you do or what you don't do or. Uh, you know, I'm giving my dad guilt trip about like every minute you're like receiving the service of somebody else, some benefits in some ways. So you're thinking about how you can serve others. Um, is it, po maybe this is a deeper question. Is it possible in current American culture to require true commitment from people? Is it even possible to require true commitment. Mm. Um, if you sign a contract, then you force you to. Okay. So, yeah. Yeah, go ahead, Marissa. Um, my church tried to implement something last year. It was really comical. It's going to be good. I can't wait. They wanted all members to um, take a Sunday, a turn to be a greeter. So you had to sign for one greeter slot once a year, and the entire family that was members. Um, well then nobody signed up so, so then they created a schedule and they sent it out and um, nobody showed up for their day or not, I'm, when I say nobody yeah. I mean the majority a lot of people yeah. didn't show up to, for their turn to be the greeter so then we recently transitioned it back to a volunteer basis so at my church no yeah. <laughs> it's not possible yeah 
That is interesting because now that you say that, I'm thinking about that. Our, our church has a couple things that you're just on the list for. And actually, greeting is one of them, even though it's like it can be hit or miss. But you, uh, I think most people do it. The other one is like cookies after the service. Like if you are there, you are on the rotation. Right. right? It's just up, like expected. They signed us up to be greeters on Sunday of the church camp out. And we were on the camp out. So how could we be greeters? Didn't work out really well. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's... Yeah. So is it going back to the question, is it even possible to require this or, or why is it so hard? Yeah, Leah well, and Josh. So I think for some things you have to sign like a commitment. Yeah. But even then, like they can't stop you from like not committing to it with your mouth or your heart. Like, yeah. 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 Like freedom of speech all that. Yeah. And I even wonder I mean, and maybe this gets back to some of the individualism of our culture. It's so hard. Like if, if, if we said like, I'm going to commit to whatever, to serving or to giving, uh, right? Or I'm, I'm going to commit to being held accountable. It's very easy though. If somebody tries to actually do that for me to just be like, well, I'm out. Right. So it's, it's, it's pretty tricky. I think to, to do this. Well, Josh, and Jeremy. I don't know if it would exactly fall under the title of membership, but there does seem to be this kind of general expectation in this culture about a sense of patriotism of some sort. And if you don't have that expressed via either joining the troops or supporting the troops or mentioning positively about the troops or saluting the flag or what have you, you, sure, you can't be forced but at the same time, there is a very hard pressure against you socially to conform to that. Okay. Yeah, so there's a kind of social pressure that comes through that way. Yeah, Jeremy. Um, I think part of this, too, like people that have this idea of membership, they, like, since church membership looks very differently than like, membership to a gym, they almost want to just, like, have their membership to their gym resemble the church so it's like I'm showing up and I'm paying, I'm paying the fee. Yeah. Like, isn't that enough? I'm yeah. paying my 10% tithe. Like, yeah. I should be able to just do that. Which the number of people paying their 10% tithe is actually pretty small. Most Even churches. if you get something out of it. Um, but then, like, and that's where you get, like, this, well, I don't like the worship anymore. Like, I'm getting really fed up with the worship, so I'm going yeah. to go to membership somewhere else. Like, that's, it's almost treated like a club. Yeah. A little bit instead of, like, a congregation. So, like, I think to like get true commitment, people need to like learn first what it means to be committed to the church. Yeah. It's not like their country club that they're a part of they can just show up whatever they want and like it's more than just a once a week like, routine thing to do. It's a year round, twenty four seven, not you know, yeah. commitment to be a part of the community. It's more than just paying whatever you you know, paying your tithe and showing up whenever you feel like and then yeah, that's interesting. And so there is a dimension of that. But again, maybe that's in some ways it's, it's more like family commitment rather than just like, you know, I'm not getting something out of this. I'm going to yacht club. I don't like this yacht club. Uh, right, jumping around. Yeah, Derek, you were going to chime in. My thing with this is like requiring commitment. It goes back to Mike and I, and I have had talks about how do we get more people to come to chapel. Yeah. And I've always thought about well, what if you like re 
we think we talk about requiring people to come to chapel, but the downside to that is it takes away from the meeting. Like if you're forced to attend something, you're forced to be part of something, there's a chance that it takes away from the meaning and the value it brings. Yeah. And I just think that when you require people, like what Marissa was saying is when you're forcing people to greet in church, it takes away from the meaning behind it. So just I don't know, maybe that's not the way we're thinking this right now, but that's just yeah. When we were talking about true commitment, that just made me think of when you require things, it takes away from it. Yeah. Yeah, like how to strike that balance. I wonder if maybe a better way to say it or a better way to think about it is like if somebody says, I want to belong to this church, I want to be a member of this church or a part of the church, that they're, that part of what you say is like this is what's entailed in that, which means service or accountability. So like are, are you freely signing up? So before they become a member, you kind of give them an outline. Well, this is, this is the expectations for our members. Yeah. And then you give them the decision, like, this is what we expect you to do. Granted, you're not, you're not forced to do it, but this is what we're hoping you do. Yeah. I wonder how many people would just kind of be like, oh, never mind, I don't want to do this, if that's what you did. Yeah. Or conversely, and this is where I think these go together, if, if a church was actually modeling how, what, what it looks like to be a healthy body, where you have people giving, serving, working together, right? Where it's, it's like you start to see that there's something to that that you want to be a part of that you know is hard. So maybe this goes back to exercise analogies or something like that. But that you're saying, I, I'm going to commit to that, right? In the same way that somebody voluntarily, think about like youth sports or sports team. Somebody says, I voluntarily commit to that. But once you commit to that, you're committing to being held accountable to a certain standard and committed to your team and your coach all working together to be part of something bigger than just yourself. If you, if you were to say, I want to be part of the team, but I don't want to be, right? But I'm not going to practice. Right? How many coaches are going to be good with that? How many of your teammates are going to be good with that? Right? I think most people would be like, well, that's an absurd thing to say that you would be part of the team, but you're not going to practice or you're not going to play or you're going to kind of do what you want to do. You're, you're the final person, the final authority. That, you'd sort of realize that doesn't really work. I don't know. Maybe that's not the best analogy, but that's one that kind of comes from. Church, so if you put that in a church situation, how does the church hold people accountable? Yeah. No, no, no. How should they? Yeah. Yeah. I think there's, yeah, that's, I mean, that's the question is how can we. I can't think of anything aside from just people, like, yeah, people giving you bad looks and like, oh, thanks for helping. JK, you didn't. Yeah. Well, how would you, so, so think about it. I mean, from, from, even from, maybe we're running with the sports analogy too much. But even from the perspective of a sports team, how do you maintain some sense of togetherness or discipline on the team? There is a sense that like, hey, you're actually letting the team down, right? So it might be through conversation, right? Because you can't just tell someone, oh, you didn't do this. You're not allowed to come. You're out, yeah, right. You're, you're suspended for the next three Sundays. Right? You can't do that. Yeah, and it's part. I think, and part of it is is more the positive side. Why is it that so many people want to participate in sports, right? So think about why is it that so, especially in youth sports, why is it that people want to participate in sports, right? Because you're part of something bigger. Because you're part of a team, uh, right? Because it gives you this opportunity for community and connection. And so it's not just like how can we punish you when you step out of line, 
but how do you understand positively what we're actually about? Like, why wouldn't you want to part? Why wouldn't you want to fully participate in this community? Right? This community that is calling you to do hard things as part of follower of Jesus. And so I think that's the positive. A lot of times maybe we hear like commitment or discipline even as like a negative thing. But how do we hear discipline in more of like a positive sports oriented, like why are you so disciplined, right? I mean, imagine a coach asking a player, why are you so disciplined, right? As an athlete, that's really bothers me. Like, no, that's really a positive. You're saying here's somebody who understands Right, what they're about and how they're going to contribute to the team. All right, there were there were like several different hands at different times. I don't know who. Yeah, Michael, the Monica, Josh. Oh yeah, um, just in terms of that whole like creating an environment where it's you know why why wouldn't you want to be a part of this? I think especially from a leadership perspective, that's important. As a part of it, definitely not as the whole thing because you don't yeah. just cater to people's preferences and what they want. But I think there's a piece of it where it's you find those things, you find those those boundaries, those borders, and the foundation of things that you have to keep about your church, about the things that you do. And then within that, without, without, um, uh, without like breaking those things, you find, okay, knowing our congregation, knowing our people, how do we, how do we help that be something that they're more interested in, like that they're, that they can get involved in, that they're excited about? Yeah. I think about it, the best way I can think about it is like, um, like growing up in my family with me and my sisters, my parents never said that we couldn't have our phones at the table like during dinner, but we never did yeah. because of the way the conversation was had and the way that the entire meal happened. We never even thought of it like it was never a problem. Yeah. So the first time we were at someone's house and some kid got in trouble for having their phone at the table, we were like, that's weird. I never even thought of that. Like we knew it was unacceptable, but it was kind of a, it was made like our parents had created an environment where we wanted to be involved in what was going on. Yeah. So we never thought to not do something. Yeah. Like instinct became, we participate in this. Yeah. And so it's like, within that, it got to the point where they didn't have to require it. And so I think I've just seen enough churches go about it the opposite way, where they're like, we know what needs to be done, and you don't have to like it, but you're going to do it. Yeah. And that's like, you see that approach in some places where it's like, you can't have your phone at the table, and I'm not going to talk to you. And it's like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Like, of course, that's what they want to do. And then everyone just gets to sit there with their teeth gritted. Yeah. It's like, you kind of have to work together and find out how to get it. Yeah. Yeah. So, and that's, that's a great point because I think that part of what that points to is maybe many churches fail to actually, right? They don't call people to this true commitment because we're not actually casting this vision for who it is that we're supposed to be, right? And like what God calls us to, that, that positive vision, like you said, where it's like we didn't even think to bring our phones to the table because... We were about something. It wasn't just a rule. Um, yeah, that's a good. That's a good point, Emma. Uh, I was. I don't know. Almost the same thing. Like, like I think something has to lead to something else. Like, uh, like the your commitment with Christ and being a Christian usually like leads to wanting to serve at a church. Yeah. But I, I, until I moved here, that's when I encountered, like, membership and stuff mm. in the church. Mm. Like, in Guatemala, you just show up to a church if you want to, if you feel like that's a place where you can serve and you, a place where you want to serve the Lord, then you, like, commit to a, a yeah. worship team or whatever. Yeah. But you never, like, it's not like you it's have like, here's a list. member and then you do all of this. Yeah which to me is kind of weird. And then 
Also, I was going to mention, like, because um, he said, like, oh, you just leave. Um, and we were talking about a team, but usually sports teams play against other teams, but the church is supposed to be united. Yeah. And, like, you, you go to church to do fellowship, but you have this global church in mind, like yeah. the church. Yeah. So it's not like you are against other churches. Yeah. And if you get mad if somebody's used your church to go to another church because it every church is supposed to serve the same purpose. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's a good point. You're not in This is not about being in competition with other churches yeah. or something like that. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's good. Yeah, Josh. So I was going to say that I think we do have some uh, systems in place, at least in, in some churches, uh, of how to require things of people, and that's their church discipline. So, for example, the uh, at least at least in my church, um, you cannot serve on a whole lot of things in church unless you're a member. So you can you can help with the after after service meal. You can help with that. There's a few things you can do, but things like uh, being a um, a Sunday school teacher. Or the, or the worship band, or, or things like that, you have to be a member. So there's an incentive to want to be a member, and then therefore an incentive to um, su to submit if you were being found uh, faulty, uh, sorry, um, in committing something wrong uh, in, in the community. And discipline is, church discipline is something that uh, kind of incentivizes to, uh, well, we say repent yeah. in, that, in that sense. So I'd say church discipline is uh, one way they can go about it and that some churches do actually go about it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think going along with that, it, it would be interesting, maybe your church does, it'd be interesting just to see how different churches practice this differently. Uh, one of the pieces of, at least my church, which is part of the RCA, the Reformed Church in America, when somebody does become a member, there's actually a list of questions and answers where like, they make vows yeah. to become members of the church. So in other words, like they, just like you would in a, in a marriage ceremony, you would say, here are things I promise to, here are things that, and, and actually part of what you promise to as well is that, yeah, I promise to submit myself to... To, to discipline, to accountability, but I also commit to building up the body, to serving. And so it's interesting. I mean, I think that there's, I think sometimes we maybe churches take that a little bit lightly, but to actually see that as here, here's a point where you are actually saying something and promising something. Now, part of the tension is we don't always do a good job at like holding each other to that, right? Not just as like, oh, my pastor came and talked to me about this, but just as one another, like encouraging each other. Like, how are you serving? How are you using your gifts? How are you building up the body? Um, but I think that, that can, it can at least be there as a marker to say, hey, we promise to do these things. We're in this together. Uh, and we can kind of come back to those things uh, to, to help us navigate that. I thought there was one more hand, then we're going to move on from the first bullet point, which is very good. I was just going to say something along the lines of what Josh was talking about of, and along the lines of what Monica was saying um, about how in your culture it's kind of like you just go to church and you serve and you're not you don't have to be a member. Yeah. But in the past few years, like growing up in my church, like visitors didn't really like want like didn't volunteer to serve or anything. Hmm. Um, that was just a membership thing. So then in the past few years, when we've gotten new like visitors and they've become regular visitors, um, they're like, hey, can I help out with these things? And then we were like, do we want 
does that happen? Do like non-members do things? Yeah. <laughs> and that, so that's like a conversation that has come up in my church. Um, and we've let them do certain things, uh, but not necessarily like be the worship leader or things like that. Um, because, and I think this is what you're saying, um, we don't want to necessarily let them do those types of things because then we can't really do like, this is a little drastic, but like can't really do church discipline. We can't really hold them yeah. up to some type of like standard. Yeah. Um, and this might be a little bit unrelated, but it has something to do with church discipline. There was a family in my church who didn't like how we kind of did that. They were like, we just want to be able to like serve as members or not members. And they actually were members, but they just didn't really like that we wouldn't allow non-members to do things. Um, and so they eventually asked for like to be dismissed as official members, but they still came to our church. Huh. Um, and that it's very, very strange. It's very complicated. Um, <laughs> and then actually a few months later though, um, it came out and there was this, and this was a massive, like really like church shaking thing. Yeah. Um, this specific family, um, the stepmom was rightly accused of like physically abusing her stepkids mm. and then once they weren't members and they came out in our church we couldn't do anything like as a church yeah. um, for any type of like accountability or anything like that because we had already like dismissed them yeah. um, and it was really really splitting um, because so many people were like oh we're totally standing with stepmom she would never do that yeah. And then there were, like, the same people who, like, believed yeah. the children with bruises and, like, all these other stories. Um, it was, it was, yes. we yeah. tried, <laughs> tried, um, but we couldn't do anything because then as non-members, as a part of the body, still-ish, yeah. we had no way to, like, be like, oh, you need to repent of these things to still be a part of this church, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. yeah, and so eventually, though, um, the end of that story, and ish of that story, they're still around sometimes, Yeah. Um, but our pastor went to them and said, we ask you to never come here again, because yeah. this is not something that we want to continue in yeah. our church yeah. as a body. So yeah. there's tons of other details, but it's this whole conversation kind of pertains to it. Yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah, that's interesting, and that... That, yeah, that, that, and I think especially in a situation like that where you hear of those things going on, sometimes we're, I think probably most of us maybe have seen church discipline either not done at all or else done badly. But then you see situations where it's like something has to be done. Like church discipline is not just a bad thing. Like there's this need to have points of intervention to say you cannot do this and continue to just call yourself a faithful follower of Jesus, that there has to be some kind of repentance there uh, in those situations. All right, Jeremy, last one. Well, I was just going to ask a question. Where does the, like, where does the whole idea of membership come from in Scripture? Yeah, I mean, I think you get it in places. So this wouldn't be in exactly like, it might look different in different churches, but the idea of there's one body but many members in that metaphor, and, and so the idea there is that uh, all of us as followers of Jesus are members of the body of Christ. But again, that's where, depending on how that can get taken, that, that way of talking about it can, can, I think, be potentially confusing. Different churches, I think, looking at Scripture as a whole, sort of recognizing what this means to, to walk with each other in discipleship, have put together different ways of trying to do that well. Uh, so it might look different, say, from den denomination to denomination. Is that First Corinthians, well, I'm thinking of like 1 Corinthians 12, 
uh, discussion of spiritual gifts there especially uses that language of members and members of one another if one member suffers we all suffer if one rejoices so there's that kind of interconnection and um, unity and togetherness that are that are crucial there um, all right I'm gonna skip some of these this is an interesting one who are let's just list some of these this is gonna be fun um, who are some well-known leaders pastors Christian celebrity? Is that, a, is that a thing? I guess it's a thing. Yeah. <laughs> Let's just give it that way, Kanye. Yep. Kanye West. Oh, Joel Osteen. 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 Joel and then he got up and talked about, I mean, how he's God's greatest creation. Yeah. That's a pretty good oh, man. And he, he gave, like, all the good standard, like, conservative evangelical, the media's corrupting our kids, oh, no. right? There's, like, masked messages. I'm like, is this guy listening to Beatles backwards in the city? <laughs> He's playing yeah, with that. Um, Paula White. It's the most punchable. Who's that? Paula White. Oh, yeah. Uh, Paula White. She's Trump's spiritual advisor. You know, you $259 in the month of January. Right. All right. <laughs> yeah, she gave some numbers. Sounds legit. Uh, other, other, are we, are and again, they can be. Rocks? No, I mean, this can be. It can be legit. It can be. I mean, I'm gonna put. I'm gonna put my friend Tim Keller up here. Luke Skywalker. Okay. <laughs> this is not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. But leaders, pastors. Anti right. Okay, anti right. John Piper. Piper. Oh, Piper. Beth Moore. Who's the go home guy? Beth Moore. John MacArthur. John MacArthur. Johnny Mac. Oh, who's the guy who's like the who's like pastoring Justin Bieber and LeBron James? Well, which one, dude? He's got like no, he's the, he's the lead pastor of Hillsong. I can't think of the name. Oh yeah, yeah. Hillsong. Just put Hillsong. That's bigger than any one person. Rob Bell, flashback. Billy Graham. Ken Dobson. Matt Chandler. Yes, Matt Chandler. Francis Chan. Fran Chan. Fran Chan and Matt Chan. Fran Chan and Matt Chan. Oh, those are a few. Um, so it's interesting. I just I want to draw this guy, Pat Robertson. People are still just throwing out names. Um, so, you know, part of what I wanted to see is that to to think about how um, different views kind of what's our what's our calling as the church connects up with different leadership styles. So. If you think about, again, this is one probably most people or less people hold or people are shying away from more. If your view is heaven-centered, so it's like, how can we get people to believe in Jesus so they'll go to heaven when they die? And that's kind of the overarching, maybe the only concern, the, the way that we frame it. Uh, you're going to look for somebody who can convince people that they're sinners. They need to pray the sinner's prayer. And they'll accept the gospel message. Uh, right? So somebody like Billy Graham... 
who again, in more of a previous era of, of American history, could just you know, go to places, fill arenas, and have thousands of people uh, come forward to make a decision to follow Jesus. And one of the interesting things, especially even about, this has always been the case in kind of American history and revivals, is that you know, you'll get like 10,000 people giving their life to Jesus, and you know, Sunday church attendance will go up by like 500. There's always a little bit of like a little bit of a disconnect there. It's maybe easier to call people to respond to a single message than it is to actually embrace a life of of, of discipleship. Um, but if you think about if you think about other views, so if, so the world centered view again, think back the the way that he actually mentions N.T. Wright. So I guess N.T. Wright might be in that. Uh, I think N.T. Wright describes a world centered view. I don't know if he's necessarily the leader of a world centered view. Um, because a world-centered view essentially says our call is to make the world a better place. So who are the kind of leaders that are going to best do that? You need people who are good strategists, people who are going to help mobilize, people who know how to get from point A to point B to C and D, who can see that. And so you know, some of that almost sounds like uh, people who maybe uh, would be better off in the field of they, they might make better CEOs than pastors, or maybe we think of pastors as CEOs because it's how can you have a vision, put forth a strategy, execute that, and bring that about. Uh, so you're trying to make the world better. Or somebody like Pat Robertson, who actually you go back 30 plus years, is very influential in mobilizing the evangelical right to make a difference in the political landscape. Yeah. Well, I was amazed as I was reading Newton's uh, description of the of the heaven-centered folk when it comes to leadership. And just how many uh, people and denominations fit into that yeah. that you wouldn't assume are, are heaven-centered, that you would think are actually heaven-centered. But when you look at actually what they're talking about and what their purpose is in terms of growing their church and stuff like that, it's very heaven-centered. So one that I wouldn't associate with heaven-centered, but that now I think is very heaven-centered, would be you know kind of like Bill Hybels and uh, Willow Creek or former Bale Bibles and yeah. Bale Creek, you know, this thing of you want to make this an engaging place to come in and the whole thing is to kind of get everyone into the church. And then it's, it's not so much a talk about it and let's go out and uh, just, just change the world, but rather it's kind of a thing of just kind of come to Jesus. It doesn't quite say, and we'll go to heaven, but it's rather this kind of, you know, almost insular thing. Yeah. Yeah, so very focused on kind of a, a, a magnetic leadership style or somebody who's really charismatic, somebody who can draw people, somebody who can get them in, into that particular place. Um, so here, here's a question that I didn't actually, I didn't put this specific question on here, but I want to think about this in relation to this quote. How do most churches, and maybe even how do most church leaders, think about leadership in the church? Uh, Nugent says, the congregation doesn't elevate, or elevate leaders so they can get the work done. Leaders elevate the members so they can do the work of the body. Is that how most people view church leaders? I think not. So, how would you, how do you fix that problem? Let me, let me, here, here's one idea that I have that probably wouldn't go over very well. What if there were no paid church leaders in the American church? How would that change 
the nature of the church. Probably be a lot less churches. Church leaders. Church, church leaders. Yeah. Less people yeah. Listen. Yeah. People are like, why am I? Should I go to seminary? What's happening now? Right. What is this? What is it? And part of the reason, because by the way, I do think it's valid that church leaders, pastors are paid. I'm not trying to. <laughs> I don't. I don't question that. But. What does, what does that do to the relationship between pastors and churches most of the time? How does that, how does that shape how they think about each other? Or at least how churches think about pastors a lot of times. Getting paid them getting paid. We're, we're paying you to do the work. Right, we're paying you to do the work, right? Your job is to do the work. Um, and so that's why I wonder, like, if that was taken away, all of a sudden it would be like, well, whose job is it to do the work? Oh, it's in some ways it's all of ours. This goes back to the, the idea of commitment. I get the idea of saying we want people to freely volunteer, but there's also a sense in which to be part of this, it's almost like saying like, well, are you going to volunteer to take care of your kids this weekend? It's like they're my kids. There's actually there's very little volunteer about it, right? You are because of who you are and where you are. You are called to serve. And so if you are a member of the body of Christ, it's, yeah, maybe you are not equipped to do everything, but you are called to certainly to do something, right, to build up the body, to do the work of the body. Uh, and so I wonder, yeah, I just wonder how that would change our perspective if, if, if tomorrow there were no paid leaders in the American church. What do you think? Um... I think it would force people to it would force people to decide or it would force some people maybe who are kind of in the middle to decide if they really want to participate like if they really want a church or not. Yeah. Also, do all these other things like, oh my, that's a lot. He might not have everything um, he or she previously had to pour into that message. Yeah. Or doesn't doesn't have the education. Yeah. The doctrine gets overlooked. Yeah. And I think part of what that shows is, at least in the American church, we've actually linked training and doctrine to schools or seminaries like they're not something that actually gets passed and this is not true in just america but other places as well where here's another way to look at this question whose job is it to produce the next pastor of your church should be but i would argue that if you go into mo I, I think if you go to the majority of churches and ask where's your next pastor coming from what are, gonna, what are they going to say? Seminary. Yeah, ask the pastor. A seminary, right? Somewhere, somebody. Ask the search committee. Right? Ask the search committee. <laughs> right? Where are we, where are we going to find this person? Um, right? Seminary, we hope. We hope somebody somewhere is raising up leaders because we're not doing it. Right? Or, or like that's not our primary call. Seems, it seems a little strange. I don't know. Maybe I'm the only one who kind of wrestled with this, but that's a little strange, isn't it? Churches should train up their pastors. 
I think they should take more of an active role of saying, what is Christ? So part of this makes me wonder, like, do we actually know how to make disciples? I think we do, but I think we're not super intentional about it. Do we know how to raise up leaders? Sort of, but again, we're not very intentional about it. I just wonder, like, how would it, how would it change us if we're to say it's actually our job to raise up the next leader? Because I know in my life, one of the things that, one of the things that helps you mature is, is children, to go back to our first topic of discussion, <laughs> right? When all of a sudden it's like you have to be responsible for the next generation when you have to be responsible for somebody else, that raises your own bar as well as training them up. And I wonder what it would do to our churches if we said it's actually it's prim- not only your job, but it's primarily your job to be nurturing the next leaders of your church rather than just somebody somewhere is going to want to be a pastor and then they'll go to seminary then our search committee will find them at the right time and then realize two years later it was not a good fit and then we'll and then we'll go back and do the same thing which is not always the case but sometimes is yeah well, excuse me um that way it like it kind of like people might make the mistake of hiring someone just because the, like the person is doesn't have the calling to be a pastor but yeah. they just want the money yeah. Like that's I've been thinking about that a lot. Like a lot of people don't have probably don't have the calling to be a pastor, but they go to seminary and they get trained and then they get hired, but it's not really like they're just like, oh yeah, I got a call and I got hired. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it would at least be one way to say, well, we know this person is not doing it for the money. And I don't think most people are, given what most pastors are paid. <laughs> right? It's, that's already, right? It's, it's, already, it's already kind of that direction. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. In a lot of cases, actually, in many other environments, I'm more, this is why I actually appreciate denominational structures and others that say you actually have to pay your pastor like a living wage or what they're, what they're worth. Um, that's actually helpful to have some requirements like that for churches so that it's not just uh, not just whatever yeah yeah michael and josh uh, uh i guess this is kind of a question for you but what's the what do you think the relationship should be uh congregation versus leadership when something goes wrong in the church because i know a lot of the time i've seen any any number of, of falling outs or rise of allegations or discovery yeah. of misconduct that's happened. And a lot of the time it's so easily blamed, of course, on the person or group that is that that is in question. Yeah. And then a lot of it will get blamed quite directly on the lead pastor or the team of elders or even just the member the members of the church by the people who are attending who interacted with people on a daily basis. And I know my personal thoughts have been Maybe part of us not having such a, a, a worship complex of leaders themselves yeah. and having more of a commitment and a membership to things would also be taking some of the responsibility for when bad things happen. Thinking, yes, but we as a congregation could have also yeah. done something different. We as a group could have also prevented this in one way or another. Yeah. But I'm interested to know, yeah. if anything, like what your thoughts have been in terms of that dynamic. Yeah, so I think even something, so I'll take, and maybe this example will speak to it or maybe not, but I even think earlier we were talking about the question of church discipline. What do you do when, when somebody is uh, living in a way they shouldn't, living sinfully? 
a lot of people will say, oh, I better let the pastor know so that they right. can go take care of that. Whereas I would say, if you know about it, then the biblical mandate of actual of Matthew 18 is actually you go talk to them about it. It's not somebody else's job first. Uh, and so there's a sense in which we are all responsible for the health and well-being of, of the body. And so I, I think something like that would it would at least be one step toward just saying, well, that's the elder's job to take care of that, or that's the pastor's job to take care of that. But to say, no, it's our job as the body to be aware of that, to be doing our part in that. Um, and I think it does, I think a big part of this is uh, church leadership is tricky because if you're a pastor or leader in a church, Right. I would say the strongest temptation is not money. The strongest temptation is doing what you're doing for the sake of attention, for the sake of people pleasing, for the sake of so people will look at you and think, wow, that's a good person. Right? They really know a lot. They, they want to serve God. And so I think part of, part of what church leaders have to do is actually take themselves down off that pedestal as well to say like, not only am I not a perfect person, but I'm actually not going to do everything. Right? So like, don't feed into this system that I think is probably in a lot of ways unhealthy, both for leaders and congregations. Part of what leaders have to do is be willing to be looked at as maybe lazy by their congregation. Like, why aren't they doing more? Being like, well, I'm not here to do everything. Right? I'm here to do a few things, and to equip so that others can do the work. Uh, but that means you have to be willing, you know, that means you have to take some heat. Uh, and, and that means you also have to find ways to live within your limits. And sometimes, especially for people in church leadership, again, it's like you, you want to be doing good things for God. And we oftentimes can be so busy doing those things that we, we end up doing them in unhealthy, unhelpful, unhelpful ways. I don't know if that totally addresses your question, but that I mean, starts to get at it, I think. Yeah, Josh? Um, so, this, so this question about the thing that you're asking, of, you know, should churches, what if churches just stop paying their pastors? That's actually quite relevant for me right now because uh, recently over the last few days as I'm planning for next year and seminary and stuff like that, I was given access to what's called seminary ads and it's basically all the churches and ministries and stuff that are looking for people and, and stuff like that. And I've had a weird thing happen in me as I'm looking at that because prior to that, as I'm looking at them kind of uh, around the school and other places, oh, this church needs this place and this position place pays this much. I've kind of scoffed at that because I've come from more of a, a, a tradition where basically it's all volunteer almost, except yeah. for maybe the pastor. Um, but as I'm looking at the ads and thinking about, you know, having to move there and live there and all the expenses and stuff like that, it's, I'm not going to lie, it's, it's tough to not feel the, the temptation to kind of just look at a place and be like, oh, I could get paid to do that, which to me, it still feels icky yeah. to, to kind of look at that, because again, I, I do believe that there is a, that there is an issue when we kind of do the thing of kind of like offering church jobs because for me it kind of takes away from the 
I don't think that church should be looked at as, as just another job. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you're probably only going to see in the coming decades, right, as church, churches actually get smaller and as people give less, it's going to be less and less common to, to actually have kind of full-time pastoral positions. I think you're going to see more and more people doing bivocational ministry where they're working one job as well as doing um, stuff in a church context. So it'll be, it'll be interesting. Um, all right, ship number three. Uh, so this is what uh, Nugent says about fellowship. Uh, and you know, when, when I was reading this section on fellowship, I kept thinking about uh, like Brian Telzerow's stuff on relational ministry, connection, spending time together. Uh, because Nugent says, here's what true fellowship requires. Time. I think that's sort of the number one. is simply time with people. Uh, location. In other words, proximity. You have to be close to people. There has to be points of connection. Uh, energy uh, and devotion or commitment uh, to this. Time, location, energy, devotion. Uh, I think this is, it's interesting to think about. What are, so what are key obstacles in our culture and society to attaining true fellowship? And I think, again, by this, he's not simply meaning, you know, like, uh, 30 minutes after the Sunday service, drinking coffee and, and eating cookies. That's good. Um, but real connection, real relationship, what are key obstacles in our culture and society to, to, to getting it? I mean, even thinking through what takes up our time, what takes up our energy, what are we devoted to? Work. Work? School? School? Kids, family, friends, family, friends. life. <laughs> this really feels like the end of the semester, doesn't it? It's really, it's really encouraging. Crying, you time to cry. <laughs> he says, um, so one of those. Even think about something like this. Is it important that uh, church members live close to each other? You could probably more, say yeah. Um, especially in West Michigan where some of our churches look more like malls or Costco parking lots. Right? What, what does that imply? And I'm not saying, I mean, maybe there are ways even within some of our bigger churches that you can get some of this. Uh, but part of what this seems to imply is that there's some kind of local connection, a kind of rootedness in a particular neighborhood, uh, in a particular city. Something that might come natural you know, if you're in a church that's just in a small town where everybody knows each other, everybody lives together, and so it's not a question of you know, somebody driving from Byron Center and somebody else you know, driving from Baker and somebody else driving from wherever to all try to find a place to connect up. Um, What do we? So, how do you have fellowship when you've got work, school, kids? What else did you? Have? Is it possible? Yes. So it's possible. It's, I mean, it, it's it's 
Like so, it's like having a social life at school. Okay, well, and well, would you say? Uh, you just give up on sleep. You just give up on sleep. <laughs> Don't sleep. Uh, you would have to make time. Okay, you, you'd have to make time. Uh, you'd have to, maybe another way to think about this, though, is even think about how within those things, there are possibilities for fellowship. So even how within school, I don't know if you would say this or not, but there is the opportunity for connection and fellowship with other people that you're going to school with. Or if you are at work, there may be, depending on your coworkers, um, if they're unlike my coworkers I had at Meyer. Not now. Marked at Meyer College. <laughs> it was not. I wouldn't call it fellowship. Um, weren't exactly good. Anyway. So, um, <laughs> it's interesting. Just having flashbacks. Flashbacks to, flashbacks to Naps Corner Meyer. Um, <laughs> good times. Um, and so part of it is, is to find out where, uh, no, I was in the grocery, you're okay, you're, you're, you're up front. Um, it's, it's, yeah, do go back there. It's, it's cavernous. Uh, um, so part of it means looking for opportunities where we're at, and there's actually some interesting church planting stuff that's being done now with saying, what if we even rethink our idea of where, where or what church is? Like, what would it look like to plant a church that uh, maybe meets, you know, on Tuesday uh, downtown at Spectrum Health because you've got a cluster of healthcare providers who are all Christians, who are working in the same place, who actually spend a lot of time together. How could we, how do we think about what church looks like in maybe different places in different contexts? And so... Again, there are maybe some questions, thinking about what that might look like. But one is to, again, recognize that all the different places and spaces we inhabit are not sort of devoid of God's presence, but to think about how you have something like that uh, real fellowship that can happen uh, in those particular places. I mean, that's one of the things, to be honest, that's one of the things I enjoy about working at Kuiper is my relationship with other professors, other staff members, as well as students, that part of what it provides is an opportunity for actual fellowship, right, where there is the opportunity for something deeper, something more than just, I'm going to work. But again, that's something that could happen, I think, in a variety of other workplaces, uh, if there are other Christians who are there at times of point, and points of connection. So when you talk about fellowship, you are, are you referring to are you referring to with other Christians in general as the bigger church? I think it can be both. Okay. And, and I think certainly I wouldn't want to say to the detriment of the local church. So like my only point of connection is say at Kuiper because I wouldn't say that Kuiper is a local church. Uh, but certainly there are opportunities to connect with other Christians as part of the broader church within that uh, within that. Um, I also think it's worth, and I'm not, I, I hope, I'm not just picking on mega churches here, but even to say, like when I think about fellowship and points of connection, I, I sort of realize, I mean, maybe this is, maybe this is just our culture, maybe not, I don't know. Um, somebody recently, I don't know where it was on social media, said like Jesus, Jesus' greatest miracle was having 12 friends in his 30s. <laughs> Right? Where it's like, 
part of it is just because, at least in my experience, uh, <laughs> people are like, what? <laughs> is that true? Um, at least in my experience, it's true, partly just because you have less time. And so friendships take, long, I mean, in my experience, when you, especially when you live in the dorms, I don't know if, you've, if you lived in the dorms or not, but if you live in the dorms, um, that is a lot of hours that you spend with people. Uh, probably too many. Uh, so, it's, so, but when I think about like the number of hours that I spent uh, with guys in my dorm my freshman year, and then think about, you know, how long once once I have a job and family and everything else, how long in my life does it take me to reach that same level of time just spent with one of my with a friend? Could be ten years. Right? It's a, it's it's a lot, uh, and so part of this goes back to this question of how are we going to invest and use our time uh, and energy, that there are only so many things you can do, and the question becomes how central is fellowship uh, to, how we, to how we spend our time. Um, maybe this, is, this has always been a little bit challenging to me because I remember um, I spent a couple summers in the Philippines, and it was always striking to me, at least even compared to my experience in the American church, it it appears, and I don't think I'm romanticizing this, maybe I am, but it appeared to me that they had a lot of time to spend together. So it was like Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, we would go out to different churches, uh, right? The church that we were working with, Sunday evening they spent together, Monday evening, it was like, they like, I'm like, you guys do the same thing every night, but you come up with a different name for it. It's like Monday evening's Bible study, adult Bible study, Wednesday night's prayer meeting. I'm like, okay, slightly different, I guess. Uh, right? They'd be like Thursday night, I don't know, whatever, get together and eat supper and hang out. Friday night is like college night. It's like people were just with each other uh, constantly. Uh, it was a little bit of a culture shock to come back to the North American context where it was like, right, go home, everybody watch Netflix. Right, see you next Sunday. Uh, Right? Kind of go about your, your usual lives, work, school, youth sports, all the other things we're, we're involved in. Uh, and it, it just made me wonder how much we fill our time with things that we think are necessary, but end up actually taking away from, uh, from real fellowship. Oh, yeah. Just had to throw this in there. Lord of the Rings humor. Uh, <laughs> it was about fellowship, so I had uh, <laughs> Oh, I love that. It's mostly true. It's mostly true. Uh, <laughs> yeah, sorry. Sorry. They should have left Gandalf in. This is very, this is very important. Very important. Um, I will point out, and, and Tolkien actually points this out, very few people recognize that Frodo actually fails on his mission, which is part of... No, constantly, consistently. It's not even just at the end. Yeah. Continuously does the yeah. <laughs> Hang in there. You gotta get through the Shire. They gotta get out of the Shire. Um, even even in the books, the books are not great. Um, so I, I just want you to listen to what Nugent says 
because I think this is where, if we can cast a positive vision, if we can say, what is it that God is calling us to do? Um, I think there's a power in this. Uh, and so on page 143, Nugent asks us to imagine a few different things. Uh, he says, imagine being part of a church where people don't feel lonely because they find themselves in regular fellowship with friends in Christ. Imagine being part of a church where those working on big projects or struggling through major problems don't have to constantly beg for help because brothers and sisters in Christ check in daily to see how things are going and offer help before being asked. Imagine a body in which we don't have to plan special events for our youth because they're already busy doing special things throughout the week with brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles in the faith. Can I get an amen from youth, youth men specialization folks? Uh, right. like, uh, imagine a life together that's bustling with such meaningful activity that members don't need to aimlessly search through Netflix or Hulu trying to find yet another show that can capture their interests for a short time only to leave them feeling empty again when it's over. Uh, imagine a world in which kids don't have to watch endless Disney Channel or Disney Plus reruns or scan through various app stores looking for a free game to help them deal with their insufferable boredom. Right? Imagine members who can't wait to get home from work so they can see what everyone at church is doing that night and to hear about what they've been doing all day. Imagine us not caring whether we'll be serving someone, watching shows, or playing games together because we've learned to find enjoyment in doing what others enjoy and serving together whatever the task may be. Imagine what it would be like if we renounced the idol of personal preferences, likes, and dislikes, which according to our culture makes us unique. Imagine a world in which life in the body... This is one that always gets me. In which life in the body no longer interrupts our real lives because it has become the primary rhythm of our lives. Imagine instead that our life together in kingdom fellowship is our true life, which gets interrupted by jobs, chores, and the need for sleep. Glad somebody mentioned sleep. Um, this is what God asks of his people because of precisely what he's made of us. It's the kind of fellowship that a lost world desperately needs to find. Uh, that, to me, I think, casts a helpful vision uh, but it's frustrating because on the one hand, it seems simple, and on the other hand, it's very difficult. And I think the difficult thing about it is uh, it, it requires a complete kind of recentering of our life on that. Uh, and uh, and it, I think we still think about church as something we go to or where we participate in programs or services and less something that does form the daily rhythm, the daily, the daily habits of our lives. Um, I'm going to skip over. I'm not going to say too much about family relationships. Family friendly. Um, but suffice it to say, yeah, you can, yeah, Nugent talks about how the, the one thing I'll emphasize this first part, that on the one hand, there's a radical separation so that we do not view family the way that the world does. Uh, that family is not kind of the be all and end all. It's not our allegiance uh, no matter what. But it's also that the kingdom calls us to a kind of new Jesus-centered radical faithfulness so that what it means to be a husband or wife is radically changed by understanding who Jesus is. What it means to be a member of my family is radically changed because of uh, who Jesus is. I do want to touch on friendship uh, briefly uh, because, again, I was trying to wrestle with what he says there. He says... Jesus never calls unbelievers friends. And maybe this just has to do with how we use this word, especially in the Facebook world. Nugent argues that we may share the same likes as an unbeliever, but that we'll not be friends with them because our lives and loves are ultimately different. 
He argues that just as marriage should be only between Christians, so our true friends should only be Christians. Does this sound right to you? Why or why not? Yeah. I kind of struggled with, with it at first because I was trying to see, because I understand his points about being on the same page. Yeah. I think especially where we're going. Because I definitely, uh, when I think about my, my non-Christian friends, I do have this, this heartache on the other side of like, I don't know if I'm going to see you. you know, I'm, I'm on yeah. the other side. I like to see you there, you know. But then I thought, well, it's how he's defining friendship. Okay, within that definition, I guess that works, but okay. it seems like it's semantics at this point. Yeah. Because it's friend. Well, he's defining friend as people going on, on the same road together, basically. And he says what you can do for people who are not on the same road with who you can have essentially affection for them. Yeah. That's what I'm understanding. Yeah. Yeah, so if there's a shared, especially when you think about shared love, it's like, okay, we, we might have some overlap in things we like in common, but that ultimately what orients our lives, the love that orients our lives, is going to be different. Yeah, we're, we're going to different places. Yeah. We're yeah. on the same road. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I kind of agree. I think we can be friends, but I think, like, especially when I think of friends, people that I share my concerns with and my worries with, like the advice and the support that I would want is not the support and advice that they can give me. Yeah. And the advice and support that I would want to give them isn't necessarily the advice and support that they would want to receive. Necessarily. Yeah. And like, yeah, the people that I would be closest to, I would want to have that connection where we both understand that like the core part of our lives is our faith. Yeah. So I think like you can be friends. It just depends on how you use. Yeah, like, yeah. Yeah, like friends, like talk and chat with, but like deep, close friends, I think it's really hard. Yeah. Yeah, just because there's not that same shared orientation. And I like the way you say, even, yeah, thinking about giving and receiving advice or things like that, you want that to be from somebody where there's a shared, uh, that deeper shared vision. Yeah, Michael? Yeah, I guess I kind of just read it as. As, as, as a, it's not possible type of thing, like where I read it as him saying, if you're, if you're, you know, deep and serious about your faith, it's going to be impossible for you to be deep and serious friends with someone hmm. who does not share that faith. Yeah, because it's kind of that you're not, like Josh said, you're not you're not going to the same place. So that means the journey is going to be different. Like you're not you're not taking the same way to get there. So it's going to be impossible for you to stay together because. If you're actually serious about your faith and you can't share that with someone, that then how close of friends are you really if that's the biggest part of your life and you can't share it? Yeah. Like, like it, it's, it's going to be impossible for one to be, for your faith to be that big a part of your life and for someone to be that close of a friend to you. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a, again, there's a depth there that you right. just can't, you, you can't get on the same wavelength. How would you... How would you define somebody who's a true friend? And maybe a flip side of this is to think about what makes friendships endure, or what make friendship what makes friendships end. I think, and again, we don't have much time to talk about this, but I think friendship is something that's often devalued in our culture because we've made marriage kind of the only form of friendship that there that really has any kind of lasting significance or. or value and so we don't have a deeper understanding of 
what is, what is a friend, what is a true friend, uh, and how do you understand who a true friend is? Maybe I've been thinking about this a lot because my fifth grade daughter is having all kind of, it's like, it's like interesting dynamics going from, uh, yeah, it's like, are you guys learning stuff? Mostly learning how to try to navigate social problems. This person's not my friend. This person said they're my friend. They didn't talk to me. Are they my friend? Like, do you guys even know what friends are? I'll come and facilitate a philosophical discussion. Uh, probably won't help. Yeah, Derek. Yeah, just like going from high school to one college to another college to this college, you say you're, like, you have your group of people that you associate with. And when you, like, go from one place to the other, you say, oh, yeah, we'll still be friends. We'll stay in contact. But then you just, over time, you either lose track of them or you don't try hard enough to stay friends with them. So I just, the effort value, I guess, is what makes friendships end. Yeah. That's what scares me about almost being done. Yeah. Yeah. Like a lot. Yeah. No, that's 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 valid. Um, because it does take work. It takes effort. And I think, and I think part of that though is even even recognizing that there are people who come into our lives that we're friends for a season, and that in some ways we might not be. You might not be able to interact with them uh, all the time or as frequently as like when you see them in class every Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, but there are still friends, I think. Uh, I mean, I have friends who, you know, I can see them after several years. Maybe I have friends like that too, where it's just like you pick right back up. And year, two years, three years. And you're like, it is what it is because you have that level of connection and closeness. And you know you're on that, you have that depth and you've shared that depth with them. Uh, and that, that doesn't, I think that doesn't go away. What else I thought, was there another hand? I think you were going to tell Derek you were going to be his friend still. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Leah. Were you a shared life goals. Okay, like yeah. If you're, both, if you're both moving towards the same place in life, then you're going to stick together along the road. Yeah. And if you're not, then you're going to go different Yeah. And that kind of even goes back to that, you know, yeah, how seeking the kingdom of God, how, how being oriented that way shapes, shapes us in that way. Um, all right. We'll stop there for today. We'll have one more, one more, one more class together as friends. <laughs> Our friendship will endure. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, uh, prepare special